in our evening services in recent days when we've met, some weeks we've not met, but when we have, um, we have taken something of a break from our studies in Jeremiah, and for a couple of weeks we've looked at the book of Isaiah, and uh, particularly those early chapters, and just the overall book itself in terms of its hope, the hope of uh, the restoration of God's city, uh, the city of uh, Jerusalem, Zion, uh, unfaithful, wicked, disobedient, under judgment, uh, becomes the uh, very focal point of what ultimately is uh, new heavens and new earth, in which the New Testament tells us righteousness dwells, God creating Jerusalem, uh, rejoicing. And uh, it's a really uh, great theme that's found in the book of Isaiah, but I don't think it's necessarily the the most profitable thing for us to be pursuing that in in coming days. At one point I said, yes, let's have a summer in Isaiah, but I think I'm pulling away from that idea. And uh, just be thankful for what we've done when we studied the book of Isaiah years ago, going section by section through the book and giving something of a review that we did in the last couple of weeks. I hope it's been helpful. But um, when I thought of what we would do in the evening services, um, I've been reading a book uh, written by an Old Testament scholar by the name of Daniel Block, a good guy from taught at Wheaton College for many years, also Southern Seminary. Uh, down in Louisville for many years, and just as a, a tremendously uh, 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 perceptive uh, Old Testament scholar. Uh, everything that's good seems to come from Canada these days, and Daniel Block is a sketch, resident of Saskatchewan, grew up in Saskatchewan, and uh, um, just as a gift, a real gift uh, to the church. And uh, he was very helpful to me in our studies in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, hopefully he's going to help me during the summer months um, in addressing some things with reference to the the subject of worship and the subject of worship as something not just a limited idea. Uh, Sometimes I think people in the church today, when they think of worship, they've experienced worship, and it's usually been a highly charged emotional uh, enterprise involving singing lustily, high energy song and worship leaders that lead in song, songs and, 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 and um, oftentimes you would hear in church services people say well let's not worship and as if everything we've been doing up to this point hasn't been worship and that everything uh, following the final song is not worship that's just uh, teaching that's just giving a message but you know worship is in the Old Testament something quite different than what people think it is today. In fact, uh, people who would be thinking in terms of worship as just singing, probably in the days of the, when the book of Deuteronomy um, has come from, uh, wouldn't know what in the world you're talking about. Because in fact, the ministry of song, uh, song sing, psalm singing and things like that, that's a late development in Israel's history. That began in the times of King, of King David, recorded for us in the book of Second uh, Chronicles, I believe it is, in chapter 16, or maybe it's First Chronicles 16, I think it is First Chronicles 16, where David assigned trained singers uh, to be involved in the worship of the people of God. And the work of those trained singers were actually to uh, not just entertain, or not just whip up the crowd, not just get everybody to sing high-energy songs uh, to the praise of God, but it was to instruct, and it was to edify, and it was to exhort the people. Um, So it was highly instructive. 
And uh, much of the idea of worship in the scriptures doesn't make this dichotomy or this separation between heart and head, between uh, worship that is uh, um, heart worship and head worship or head uh, instruction. We make that division today, but it's just not there in the Bible. In fact, um, the worship the people of God brought to the Lord in of the Bible always involved much more than just the emotions. Um, you think of um, the Psalms, Psalm 95, for instance. It says, oh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are his, the sheep of His pasture. I mean, that's interesting that what's equated with worship is actually the body entering into the worship of God. Not just the emotions, not just the heart, not just the inner life, but the outer life as well. The body kneeling down in the presence of God. Because you see, worship is not so simplistic as we make it out today. The whole being is involved. The energy of the inner life as well as the reality of the outer life. And so worship is conducted with hands lifted up to God in prayer or sometimes in a kneeling position, or sometimes with face prone before the, fa- uh, the, the, the face of God. In another New Testament word, that's the Greek word that's translated, uh, that translates the Old Testament ideas of worship, uh, themselves have the flavor of Old Testament concepts, in that the main word for worship in the Greek, proskineo, is actually a word that means before the face of God. It's an idea of bowing, before him, being prone in his presence, falling at his feet as one dead, is the picture of course of John seeing the risen Christ, and that's bound up even in the meaning of the words because the idea of worship is the idea in the English word worship that we use is the idea of worthship it's declaring the worth of something you know, sometimes you see some of these British shows in which people come into the court and they address the judge as your worship. And we think uh, that's, that's profane, that's, that's wicked, that's idolatrous. These people are ascribing divine honors to the judges. But actually the word worship just means worship. And those that were judges, magistrates in the courts of England, uh, the mayors of the town, would oftentimes be addressed in that way, simply declaring they're just not the run-of-the-mill citizen. They have worth uh, as mayors and as uh, leaders in the courtroom or in the, uh, the kingship of the nation that worship is given. And hence the term for worship is worship. And really so it is with regard to the way in which God is worshipped in the scriptures. I read this morning a passage found in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10. that I'd like to turn your attention back to um, tonight. Um, Because it's a passage of scripture that sets out that which we're told God requires of the people. What is it that God requires of his people? Well, he requires our worship. You think of the way in which the people of Israel were brought out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. 
They want to go out three or four days in the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and there they were to worship God. Well, where were the instruments? Where were the singers? Where's the um, a, a songbook that was to be sung? Well, none of that was there. But they were to go out into the presence of God for the purposes of serving Him. Worship in the Old Testament is the idea of serving Him. And serving Him in a way that's appropriate to our relationship to Him. So the things that God requires of the nation are in accordance with the things He has done. We sing the hymn, uh, To God be the glory, great things He has done. It's in the light of the things that he has done that God is glorified by his people. He is worshipped by his people. Uh, he is served by his people. In fact, the word for worship is also the word for service. They're really not all that different. The same word group is used, and it means the same thing. It also sometimes means to bow down. It also sometimes means um, the physical as well as the inner life that is expressing um, the, the, the honor of God in the whole uh, soul and, 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 and body life serving him serving him wholly, totally, completely with all that is within us and all that is without us that we are those who come before him as uh, body, soul uh, entities to worship and to serve and to kneel down before him and to adore him and to honor him and so we read in chapter 10 and verse 12 and now O Israel what does Yahweh your God require of you and then there's this list of things that are required and I mentioned this morning there were five of the verbs that are there Uh, there's to fear, there's to walk there's to love, there's to serve and there's to keep those five verbs are used What does God require? Well, to fear, to walk, to love, to serve, and to keep. And it's the middle one that's really the crucial one. It's the central one. Israel is to love God. They're to respond to the greatness of the love that God has had towards them in redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, breaking the authority of Pharaoh over their lives and freeing them and leading them out of that nation leading them out to, on dry land and to come to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God, to be wholly given to him with all of their beings, to love him supremely, to love him completely, to love him with all that they are. And it's in that light of that love that they fear the God whom they love. They regard him as the great God who appeared at Sinai, and struck terror into their hearts and yet the Lord who struck terror into their hearts is also the Lord who reminds them of the grace that he has been displayed toward them I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you from the, la- house of, uh, house, from, from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage I've taken you on eagle's wings I've brought you to myself not to crush you not to destroy you but to cleanse you, to sanctify you, to make you my people who will serve you, to serve me wholly and fully and uh, completely. Uh, you think of the way in which Jesus in the New Testament recapitulating the experience of Israel by going 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when the devil tempts him, uh, he, one of the things is that Jesus would what? Bow down to him 
and worship him. And uh, our Lord responds from an earlier verse in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, all of his responses are from the book of Deuteronomy. That you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the words are really taken from chapter 6. And it's a little bit different in the Hebrew. Because again, that word for worship is really to bow down. That uh, you shall bow down before the Lord your God. Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me. And God says, no, you're not to be bowing down to anyone but me. You're to bow down before me. And you're to worship me. You're to serve me. In chapter 6 and verse uh, 13, let's just back up a little. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is Yahweh your God, you shall fear him, and you shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear. And Jesus takes that very verse and speaks in terms of the exclusivity of the service we render to God. That God's to be the object of our fear, of our service, and of our religious activities such as swearing or taking oaths in his name and in his name only. Now, one of the things I think you see in these duties that are given to Israel, the things that God requires of them, is that these are required of them because of what God has done for them. How God has led them out of bondage in Egypt. How God has brought them uh, to himself in covenant in this relationship where they are his people and he is their God. And he is born with them in all of their sins throughout the wilderness journeys. And in fact, that's what Moses largely is rehearsing with the people at this point of chapter chapter uh, 10 and verse 12 is all the sins they were guilty of all their unfaithfulness along the way particularly the matter of the golden calf and also their failure to believe God to go up to the land and to seize it and the thing was that this generation he's reminding them is really not much better I mean they've had some experiences of testing the Lord in the wilderness of finding him faithful of being now prepared to go into the land in a little better position than their forefathers, the previous generation. Uh, But yet, the danger is that there's only this external relationship to God that hasn't really touched upon the heart. And God says, I want your hearts. God says, in the light of the things I've done, I want your hearts. I want your love. Verse um, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And no longer be stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. You are to circumcise the inner heart, the inner, the inner man, the, 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 the private part of, of the soul, the inner life that is hostile and hard and obstreperous, is the use of word, that you usually think of with children that are bratty, children that will not obey and look to see that we need our hearts made right with God and it's in the light of all that God has done for the nation that they need to have their hearts right with him to love him 
and loving him to fear him and walking before him and serving him and keeping his commandments and his ways. But when you think about the fact that an exhortation is given to the nation, here's how you're to behave in the light of all that God has done. Does that remind you of anything in the New Testament? Of an argument that we have in one of the major letters of the writings of the Apostle Paul, where he spends chapter upon chapter upon chapter doing what Moses is doing here, rehearsing the things that God has done for his people. And in the case, of course, the Old Testament, it was the redemption from Egyptian slavery. And in the matter of the New Testament, it was a greater redemption, but a redemption nonetheless, a redemption that is from sin. Um, having been justified by faith um, I'm, I'm sorry uh, uh, now apart from the law a righteousness of God is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God which is with faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe um, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God but, um, uh, but now being justified by faith um, I'm getting the, the passage wrong. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's there in chapter 3 of the book of Romans. The book of Romans speaks of the redemption that God has effected for us in Christ Jesus. We've been bought out from bondage and slavery and been brought into his fellowship to know him and to serve him. And the whole end of all that God has done in the grace of the gospel is to bring us to the place where Paul can do what Moses does in chapter uh, 10 of the book of Deuteronomy. Where Paul says, in essence, now Israel, or now church, now people of God, what does the Lord your God require of you? And of course the exhortation is in the words of chapter 12 of the book of Romans, where Paul speaks of therefore, the therefore, by the mercies of God, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your... And here's a problem I have with the new versions. Spiritual worship. I don't think Paul would have understood what spiritual worship was. He said in the very passage, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's not talking about a spiritual worship that only refers to the inner life. He says your bodies are to be given unto God as an act of sacrifice. You're to be whole burnt offerings given over to God fully and completely. And it's not that it's your spiritual worship that does that. It's your reasonable service that does that. Let's go back to the King James rendering. They had it right. The King James authors had it right. There is a reasonable service that's to be rendered unto God. And in fact, Paul uses language uh, that actually speaks of the mind entering in logically with a reasoned argument to why God should be served. Why we should give our bodies a living sacrifice unto him. It's a word in the Greek, it's logikon. We get the word logic from it. It's a logical deduction to make that because God has done this for you in Christ Jesus, it's an inescapable therefore that you give yourself to him. Nothing else makes sense in the light of the gospel, but then that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. 
It's your reasonable service. It's it's the only sensible thing to do if you've been paying attention. If you've been paying attention to the gospel, that's where you're going to be brought. Nothing less is right. Nothing less is proper than to, to give your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to him. Just like it's wholly logical for the people of Israel in the Old Testament to love him, to fear him, to walk with him, to serve him, to keep his statutes and to keep his commandments. Anything else is just simply moral insanity to fail to do those things. When you put forth the reality of what God did in redeeming that nation from Egyptian bondage, when you put forth what God did in redeeming us from captivity to our own sins, nothing less is, is reasonable than the therefores, that the, uh, the, these exhortations that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 10 and that Paul gives in Romans chapter 12. I want to give you just something of the, what I think of the parallels between these two passages of Scripture, Romans 10 and Romans 12 and Deuteronomy 10. I've already given you the understanding that both of these passages entail uh, response, responses to the act of redemption that the communities have received. The community of Israel in Deuteronomy 10 received redemption from Egyptian slavery. The community of believers in the church at Rome had experienced redemption through the blood of Christ, being reconciled to God, being made right with him and justified through the death of the Lord Jesus, his doing and dyings that have brought redemption to us. We need to respond. And we need to respond appropriately in a way that is reasonable, in a way that answers to the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And it's because it's the reasonable service that both passages demand, that both passages entail full-hearted, whole-body responses. Wholehearted, full-bodied responses. Now the heart is involved in this. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Of course, that's replicated in chapter 10 in the central thing. To love the Lord. You're to love the Lord. And you're to love the Lord with all your being, with all your faculties, with everything that's in you. Now you think of the psalm that says, Pray, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's a sad thing that in our day, when we think of the inner life or we think of the heart, we're basically thinking of emotions. We're basically thinking of our feelings. That's why high energy, lively music becomes the, the medium through which you, you stir people's hearts. And you bring them into an experience of, of, of yearning for the Lord in a, a highly contrived, you, oftentimes it's highly contrived, um, way of getting certain emotions, emotional responses. But the response we're to make to God is, doesn't just involve the heart. It involves the mind. Logical responses. Um, 
reasonable service that we're to give. Not at all bypassing the mind. And you look at Romans chapter 12 and you see it's, it's um, laid out again and again and again. Where um, Paul says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world or this age. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your hearts? No. The renewing of your minds. Now, mind and heart in biblical language is not all that far away. We, t- we tend to make them distant, uh, make them to have a great distance uh, of separation between the two. But not really. The mind of the heart is something that's a biblical truth. The, the understanding of the heart. Uh, the heart thinks, and the heart reasons, and the heart not only feels, but the heart deliberates, and the heart has awareness, and, and uh, um, it's cognitive as well as emotive. It's not just emotions. There's awareness and understanding uh, of the heart in, in, the, in the language of the Bible. And so it's the mind that's to be transformed, that you may discern. Discernment is something that is a weighing of, of factors and making proper judgments. And you don't just feel your way through life. You know, some people do, unfortunately. If they feel peace about something, then that's of the Lord. Some of the things that were the most troubling things in my life have been the things that have most pointed me in the direction of obedience. Because it's not your comforts or your feelings that marks out whether it's of the Lord or not. It's whether it's in an accordance with his word. And you let your feelings go and the things you feel peace about, a lot of times you'll do the wrong thing. And my classic illustration of that was years ago when we had our first real big problem here at this church. That was before some of you were even here, before some of you were even born. There was a real big problem that happened in the church. And we were, this building wasn't even built. We were meeting in the town. And my reaction to that real big problem was to say, what's the use? I'm fed up with the whole thing. And I came to the conclusion that this impasse, the thing I should do is just resign. Just resign. Just leave. And you know what? I felt peace about it. I felt wonderful. Because all the trouble is now lifted from my shoulders. (laughs) It must be the Lord. I feel peace about it. And again, you think of uh, my good brother, Greg Nichols. He's the one that stopped me in my tracks. And say, wait a minute, brother. You have a duty that you committed yourself to with regard to those people. If they still want you to be pastor and they've not kicked you out, you have a responsibility to call them to prayer. You have a responsibility to call them to obedience to the word of God. It's one thing they kick you out. But you, you're not given right or leave to leave your post. And he made it a matter. It would be a shameful thing. It would be disreputable. It would be dishonorable. It would be like a soldier leaving his duty post. Because, well, just too big a deal to fight a war. It's just too big a deal to get involved in a conflict. So just mosey on out into the air, open air, and just uh, feel good about the, the world. And then the enemy's bullets come and strikes you down. You don't want to be doing that. You want to be at your post. You want to be doing your duty. You want to be faithful. And sometimes the path of faithfulness is the difficult path. Yet it's the path of God's own appointment. So the judgment enters in. uh, That we might prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And then Paul goes on to say... By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you... Not to think of himself. Thoughts are brought in again. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. 
but to think with sober judgment as God is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's a sober judgment that's to be made. A judgment that accords with the facts. It's a judgment that accords with reality. It's not a judgment that you come to in a drunken stupor in the fantasy world, but it's a judgment that brings before your understanding things as they really are. That's what Paul is calling the people of God to. Not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. To look in the mirror and see actually who's there. Warts and all. Blots and blemishes and all. And not to look to wash them away. It's one of the nice things about having vision problems is you don't see yourself clearly in the mirror. It's a shock to see yourself clearly in the mirror. But we need that. Because we, there are things then that we need to correct. Things that ought not to be. That we allow into our lives. That we allow into um, our thoughts. and uh, our, So we need to think rightly. We need to think soberly. We need to think in accordance with the facts. And so what Paul calls the church to, in regard to what you might think is... Uh, some kind of worship, spiritual worship or whatever that the new translations say is actually an activity that is central to the mind to our understanding it's the whole man, the whole person, inwardly as well as outwardly present your bodies living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual service and that language of the presentation of our bodies Back in chapter 6, he goes, goes on the, um, uh, with that illustration in terms of bodily members. The bodily members that are to be presented to God. Look at it in chapter 6. He says in words of verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are the slaves of the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. And again, that's just not the emotion. Obedient from the, the, your inner life, including the, the understanding and, and the mind to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of righteousness. And Paul says, for just, in the middle of verse 19, just as you once presented your members. See, he's talking about the bodily members. He's talking about the body. He's talking about the eyes that see. He's talking about the ears that hear. He's talking about the tongue which speaks. He's talking about the feet and where the feet walk and the hands and what the hands do. And you once in sin presented the members of your body as slaves to sin and you did it really, truly, concretely. It wasn't imaginary. You served sin with the bodily members. Sin called upon you to give your eyes to something you shouldn't be looking at or hear things you shouldn't be hearing and instead of turning away you said, sin, whatever you want, I'm your slave. I'm your servant. Now Paul says, just as you once really served sin, not hypothetically, actually, really, you gave your 
bodily members as servants unto sin. So now, really and actually and truly, you're to give your bodily members as slaves of righteousness unto God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not hypothetically, not in some kind of deep spiritual sense, but really and actually, when you get up every morning, say, Lord, help me in my body in which I live to honor you and serve you, to give my eyes to things that honor you, to give my tongue to speak your truth and to speak in prayer and to speak words of blessing and edification to others, to give my feet to walk in ways of obedience, to busy my hands with the things that you would have me to do. You who stole, quit the stealing and rather work with your hands the things that are good that you might have not only to meet your needs but also to meet the needs of others. Concretely, we live life in the body and it's the body that's been redeemed unto God. Know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit which you have from God and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. So I really want to point that out to you is that this whole matter of the worship of God is really serving him in our bodies it's not just the thing you do for an hour on Sunday morning when you gather with the church and you sing songs worship is a whole life enterprise it's seeking to serve and honor God in everything that we would put our hands to do and so when you're doing dishes you know you're worshiping God you're worshiping God you're serving God. And Paul could say to slaves in the book of Colossians to be subject to your masters, for he says you serve the Lord Christ. If a slave in obeying his master is serving the Lord Christ, are you not serving the Lord Christ when you do the laundry? I mean, do you cut that aspect of your life apart from God, apart from his word, apart from his will? You say, oh, this is just the, the secular stuff of life. And we make that large distinction between secular and spiritual the Bible doesn't know anything about that. The Bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a theology of eating peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> the theology of peanut butter and jelly. Would you take a course in that if it was offered? Well, there's a theology of peanut butter and jelly. There's a way to eat peanut butter and jelly to the glory of God, and there's a way to not. And it makes all the difference in the world. That you do it to God's glory and honor with thankfulness. And the recognition that the things you have are given as a gift. God, this is God's provision. And, uh, you know, God's, he needs to be brought front and center to all the affairs of life. And so both Romans 12 and Deuteronomy 10 are responses to the act of God's redemption. Both Romans 12 and Deuteronomy 10 entail full hearted and whole body responses to God and also both Romans 12 and Deuteronomy 10 are centered in love they're centered in love again the central point of the five verbs is love that you love the Lord you love the Lord you go back to Deuteronomy and you see 
in a real sense, I think that what you have here, and this is what I'm going to be doing in the coming weeks, give you a little sense of where we're going with all this in the coming weeks. And I think it's important to see there is a relationship to what Paul says in Romans 12 in a Christian context, what Moses says in Deuteronomy 10 in the Hebrew context, in terms of redemption from Egypt and redemption in Christ. Uh, but the principles are really the same. It's not a different principle. Um, but that um, I think what we find in Deuteronomy with these five verbs is what now becomes a text for the following chapters. And as I said, the central thing is love. And you find in 11 verse 1, that is where he goes. He says, you shall therefore love Yahweh your God, as well as keep his charge, his statutes and his rules and his commandments. So it really begins with love. It begins with the love that we bear to God because we have been loved by God. We love because he first loved us. And Paul speaks of the mercies of God. But part of the mercies of God is that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Part of the mercies of God is that we have been foreknown. And that's really foreloved. We've been loved with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, we've been brought to, we've been brought to him. We've been foreloved. We've been predestined. We've been called. We've been justified. We've been glorified. All those uh, statements that Paul makes in that inseparable uh, chain of, of the various links of redemptive blessing that's given to us in Romans uh, 8 um, it's rooted in love love crowns the whole of it love crowns the reality of our not being known being ordained, being called, being justified, being glorified and love is that unbreakable chain that will never end Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love is central to the concerns of the book of Romans. Love is central to the concerns of the book of Deuteronomy. Love is central to the redemptive privileges we, we possess. Love is central to the response that we give unto God. He has loved us, and we learn love in the love with which we've been loved. We have that passage in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5, uh, where Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. See, that's to be imitators of God, to walk in love, right? God has loved us. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Whether we like it or not, our our beloved children mimic us. That's what they do. They mimic us. They have our genes, they look like us, they live in our homes. We, we do moral and spiritual education of our children from day one. Day one, they're looking at us. They're copying us. They want to be like dad. They want to be like mom. They want to be like the, their parents. That's natural. We're imitative creatures. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. 
as Christ loved us, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And it's interesting that Paul uses the, the work of Jesus for us in terms of the whole burnt offering, the fully consecrated offering to God that he gave for us. Paul's exhortation is by the mercies of God. Mercies of God in the gospel in which Jesus gave himself for us wholly, fully, completely, without reservation, holding nothing back, a whole burnt offering unto God for us. What is our reasonable service? It's to recapitulate that kind of love. To give ourselves to him without reservation. Our bodies, all we are, all we have, give that up to Him as a living sacrifice, as a whole burnt offering in His service. So that was the central thing. In response to redemptive acts that require of us that full-hearted and whole-bodied responses to love in return for the love with which we've been given. And so what I want to do in the ensuing weeks is, this is just introductory tonight, just to give you a sense of where I'm going. I'd like to take both uh, Deuteronomy and then Romans and kind of draw them together in terms of where our, our reasonable service is to be spent. How our reasonable service in terms of being the redeemed of the Lord and being those that are called to love him uh, the various lines of which uh, that obedience will take and uh, that's seen in the ensuing chapters of Deuteronomy it's also seen in the way Paul expounds the Christian life in Romans 12 and in Romans 13 and I think you see something of parallels that we go back and forth as we do this uh, between the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Romans. It's uh, no secret that I think biblical authors oftentimes were writing having had their devotions in given chapters of the Bible. I think when Paul sat down and wrote Romans 12, he was, he was heavily into the book of Deuteronomy. I think much of the book of Deuteronomy is reflected in the statements that he makes. And so uh, that's where I hope to go, uh, tying those things together. And that's going to be the focus of our summer uh, Summer, summer studies in which I hope we're going to learn a whole lot about worship which I hope we're going to learn a whole, about, whole, um, um, whole lot about what it means to be um, giving ourselves without reservation to God and his service and in which we'll learn a whole lot about the various lines that commitment will follow so that we're not just left to our impulses we're given over to whole Whole heart, whole, whole orbed biblical instruction um, that the Word of God gives us, both Old and New Testament. And you know, it's not a different picture. I mean, sometimes we have this idea that because you know, sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, that it was just external. Everything was all external in the Old Testament. Couldn't be further from the truth. Heart worship was at the, at the beginning. It was there with, with, with Abel bringing his offerings to the Lord. It was heart worship. 
He was wholly engaged in that offering he gave unto the Lord. For God had respect to Abel and his offering. He had respect to Abel, the faith of Abel, the love of Abel, the commitment of Abel to bring the offering he brought to God. And so this heart worship all throughout the Old Testament. The major difference is that the sacrificial system, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus and his offering once for all for our sins and the fact that we no longer worship in a temple, but we worship as a temple. We no longer go to Jerusalem to worship. We, the temple of the Lord comes to us as we are made the temple of the Lord to, as living stones built up a spiritual house to offer up uh, spiritual sacrifices to him through Christ. So, um, but it's not a different thing about inner life or intensity of, of, of heart. Um, and it's not a question the Old Testament just had bodily activity and New Testament doesn't. No, we have bodily activity too. Lifting up holy hands is an aspect of that. And uh, we don't, we're not good at that. It's not part of our tradition. Uh, we don't come into the building genuflecting or doing you know, this sort of physical stuff that Roman Catholicism is given over to. And you know, we have reasons not to do that. But uh, hey, if in the spontaneity of God's dealings with us, we fall prostrate on the ground and we kneel in his presence, that's not all. No one can, no, no one can ever tell you that's wrong. No one ever can tell you you're out of order doing that. I'm just not, because it's biblically based, and if it's a matter, not just something of, that's been engineered by the worship leader, but something that really comes of the, out of something God is doing in our hearts and in our lives, and in uh, response to Him in terms of our reasonable service, I would never question it, and I would never condemn it, and I would never tell you this is illegitimate or this is wrong. I just see too much of it myself in um, really both testaments. So. That frees you up to do something you would not nearly do. So be it. So be it. Well, I hope you just whetted your appetite for what's to come. And I hope that what's been said this evening has just been helpful to kind of lay the groundwork for um, the sort of things that become a reasonable service as the redeemed of the Lord called to love him supremely and having that as the central theme of the life we live before him so let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer Father I would pray that something of this introduction to these passages of Deuteronomy expressing the life of the believers in the Old Testament and how their reasonable service was to be um, ordered how things are required of them were to be done and the way in which the New Testament also presents the outline of that life that pleases you, that life that is uh, required of you, and that is part of what we are to give as our reasonable service. That, Lord, we would be instructed, we would be helped, we would be brought to new dimensions of understanding and to new dimensions of obedience. So we pray that you hear our prayers, you dismiss us with your blessing. You'd encourage us to walk with you fully in the days of the week to come, that we would be those who will daily endeavor to present ourselves to you with the members of our body being given to you to be slaves of righteousness, to be given and presented to you as vehicles through whom, which, through whom you will use 
uh, us for the glory and the honor of your name. So we ask you to hear our prayers, to bless us, our Father, uh, with your presence abiding with us and going with us as we part from one another tonight and we begin uh, the week at work or in our home or whatever it is that we put our hands to do. Help us to do it with all of our might and and honor to you and in, in, in service to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.